Welcome to Alchemist X Innovators Inside, the podcast where we explore the world of corporate innovation and dive deep into the minds of thought leaders, high achievers, and risk takers. I'm your host, Ian Bergman, and together we'll uncover the challenges, triumphs, and secrets behind successful innovation journeys. Whether you're an aspiring entrepreneur, an industry veteran, or simply curious about the ever-evolving landscape of innovative ideas and what it takes to put them into practice, this is the podcast for you. So grab a cup of coffee, sit back, and let's embark on this exciting journey together. Pete, hey, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Ian. Thanks for having me here today. Super, super excited to have the conversation. Oh man, welcome to the pod. I'm, I'm excited to have you. For the audience, I'd like to welcome Peter Giordano. Yeah, Pete, welcome and thanks for being here. Yeah, super excited. So, you know, you and I have met before through the lens of talking go-to-market with startups, really interesting workshops with startups and corporate entrepreneurs. But I'm going to, you know, ask you to introduce yourself. Like, tell us your story right? What do you do and how did you get there? Sure. Well, thanks. Thank you again. I'm so delighted to be here. And it's just a super exciting opportunity to be on the podcast, especially since I've been working with Alchemist now for five, six years, maybe more. It's amazing how time flies. Yeah. I'm just so delighted to see how Alchemist, now Alchemist X, has just evolved and grown and is touching more innovators out there. So super excited to be here and just share whatever I can to help those innovators. So I've been at it professionally for more than 30 years now in tech, and I've been in these kind of early roles at transformative companies like NetGravity slash DoubleClick, VMware, and, and Google Cloud. And most recently, I served as the global director for go-to-market strategy and product GTM lifecycle for Google Workspace starting in the pandemic. And while I was there, helped steer GTM and product lifecycle strategies for a product, you know, it's a planet scale product. It serves 3 billion plus users and has 10 million plus paying customers. And today I work as an advisor and a guest lecturer at Alchemist, Alchemist X, UC Berkeley Skydeck, University of Michigan's Center for Entrepreneurship, and other various accelerators. And like you mentioned earlier, like my sweet spot expertise is go-to-market strategy and innovation in, in B2B SaaS companies that target that mid-market to enterprise realm. Well, that's awesome. And we're gonna we're gonna dig in a bit into your sort of backstory. But first I'm gonna throw a curveball at you. Okay, sure. On this podcast, we talk a lot about corporate innovation. We talk a lot about what it takes to drive change in the world. And we're going to get there. First, though, what's go to market? (laughs) Go to market, it depends on who you ask, unfortunately. That happens a lot because of a person's experiences. You know, anything, any advice I share today, any advice you hear from somebody out there, you have to understand it's always coming through the lens that was forged in the crucible of the experiences that they had. So I'll share what I think it is. And I will say that often it gets conflated with just pure marketing. Sure. Right. Advertising or, you know, or maybe even just simply the four P's, product, placement, promotion, person. 
So you're bringing me back to my MBA right there. Yes, exactly. For me, like go to market is I think the difference between having a group of people that are building a product and actually having a business. Sure. And it's a, it's an important transition. Go to market is what helps you build a repeatable and predictable and scalable way to find that customer, win that customer, help them realize value. And ultimately they love the product and the experience so much, they expand their use and you have a great long-term relationship with them. And so go to market in my world, I've kind of distilled it down to what I think are the six core gears of a go-to-market engine. And those are the, the product and product strategy that goes along with it, the market that you're focused on, the commercialization, which has a, is a placeholder for many things like monetization and pricing and things like that, a sales model, channel, and the customer experiences are in and around your product with customers and partners. So I think those are those six key gears and putting those together the right way is the difference between gaining traction or not, frankly. Yeah. Well, I love that. And I think A, that's a useful definition and we might be diving into that bit. But you know what what I like hearing you say hearing you describe go to market, both in the name and in all of the six gears. This is action oriented, right? This is actually doing something. And, you know, I think so often we forget that one of the blockers to call it innovation, call it traction, call it, you know, any kind of result is doing something action oriented, which requires making decisions on what you're going to do yeah. and then going out and doing it. I don't know. I, I thought that was kind of an interesting observation as I was yeah. hearing you describe what is more than just a theoretical framework in a nice McKinsey PowerPoint slide. <laughs> well, the way I, I actually see it as this, it's the reason I use gears as the metaphor in an engine. I think go-to-market is the engine for growth. It does require a great, great product, but it needs a lot more than just product. And it's very action-oriented in terms of understanding the, the dynamics between each of these gears, the dependencies and the relationships between them, and how when you spin one gear, maybe the other gears spin a lot more in your business versus another business, maybe that gear doesn't make as much of a difference. And it all comes down to aligning these gears in a way that makes sense for the customer you're trying to serve and the problem you're trying to solve. Well, amazing. So let me dig a little bit more into, into your background sure. and your experience. Yeah. When, when we were talking, you know, we were talking before the show, you were telling me some, some stories from earlier in your career. And I thought, I thought one of the most interesting examples among many was your time at VMware. Because it feels like you were really there. Well, this is a company that was transitioning from startup to enterprise and facing a lot of challenges along the way. Is that a fair characterization? Oh, yeah, I would say so. So I was in the early couple hundred or so folks at, at VMware, and we were essentially a single product company back then with a product called VMware Workstation, which is still out there today. Far, much higher than 90% of our overall revenue 
came from that one product. And then I was very fortunate, again, time and space being what it is, to be in, in a few of the roles there that provided me with some exposure and experience to some of the challenges that we faced at growing as an innovative company back then. And yeah, so I'm happy to share you know, some of the thoughts around that. <laughs> Well, you know, absolutely. And I think, you know, so when you're sitting inside a growing company, right, you have a pretty ambitious perspective on the world usually, but it can be hard to sort of figure out, you know, what to do next, right? Because you're almost by definition driving innovation into the world, right? You're either scaling something that you're building or figuring out what's next. Can you tell us a little bit about maybe one of your roles where, you were sitting there and you were thinking, all right, like time to be innovative. What the heck do we do next? <laughs> I can absolutely give you a, a great example without getting into all the details. This is a, a little while ago. I want to make sure to position the story I'm about to tell in a way that can be relevant for folks. So Ian, help keep me on track there. Do what I can. In technology, this is probably like ancient history, frankly, that era. But it was an important lesson, an opportunity nonetheless, and had a great outcome. One of the things that I remember, and I'll, I'll actually put the lead out there first, which is ultimately this culminated me writing a manifesto, almost like a Jerry Maguire type of email to the executives. Nice. Um, I'm, sitting, I'm, I'm picturing you kind of hunched <laughs> over a computer in a dark room. I, there were a lot of nights doing a lot of modeling and getting the data right because I was about to make a pretty important and big assertion. So, you know, VMware, for those of you that are listening and aren't aware, it's, it's, it's still a big company. It's uh, being acquired by Broadcom, you know, as we speak. But it was one of the most innovative companies at the time. Effectively, the, the PhD and the engineering team there, really governed by Mendel, and Diane, the founders, were able to write software to emulate an x86 processor architecture. Yep. And I know that sounds pretty straightforward, but it has very, very deep, meaningful, transformative, I would say, impact for the industry. In fact, I would go as far to say that that virtualization capability, it is the seminal technology that has enabled what we know as cloud and SaaS today. It's what all of the cloud providers use as a mechanism. And now it's, it's evolved beyond that into containers and all of that. And this isn't a tech show, but, but that was the breakthrough. Yep, I fundamentally agree with that assertion. And so part of what goes along with that is this predates SaaS. It predates cloud. It predates the idea of annual recurring revenue from a single customer. So what does that mean? It means that we would offer software contracts. You would do an enterprise license agreement, an ELA, with a company. And that ELA would have a lifetime to it. Call it three years, maybe five years. And in that ELA, the company, right, that, that customer was saying, I'm going to pay you a set price because I get to eat as much as I can at the buffet. And I'm going to use every piece of software you can give me. and Go for it, right? And the vendor, VMware in this case, is sort of making a bet that the company will do that, but that the company will use maybe not too much of that software, right? Because at some point, if they are the buffet buster, <laughs> maybe they're getting so much value. But let's be honest, this is a bet. 
VMware was okay losing every time, right? Because you want the customer to extract every bit of value they can. You want them hooked. It's, it's pretty hard to renew that enterprise agreement if uh, they haven't, you know, used uh, value. Yeah. <laughs> and there it is. And so I started having, I got a little curious and saw some of the numbers and I started seeing that consumption, the number of licenses being used within our customers wasn't growing at a rate that I thought was going to help them be that buffet buster at the end of their three-year or five-year term. And I put together the modeling with a lot of visualizations to show that we needed to have a massive injection of capability into our customers to enable them to operationalize their virtualization projects so that they could get every bit of juice out of the software that they had already paid for. And out of this, I'll fast forward. So that was the, that was it. That was that like, oh my God, I found this thing. Yep. It's literally spread across like many, many of our, our big customers. And you could look at it as a doomsday train wreck about to happen, or you could look at it as a massive opportunity. But either way, it's like, now's the time to decide and do something, right? Now's the time to decide. And so I got very excited about this and I'm... You know, somebody once told me this is the Sicilian in me, my Sicilian background, is that I just go start talking with everybody. I kind of get the decision done before we ever show up in the executive conference room. I know what everybody's going to say before we ever, the decision's already been figured out. So I started doing a lot of that sharing, you know, walking up to executives, say, hey, you know, can I just show you this, this diagram? And basically what it was, just a curve showing like, look, here's the revenue we think we want. Here's the renewals we think we want. Do we think that getting a renewal depends on our customer getting the use out of the software that they bought? Yep. If that's the case, then here's where we're at. So ultimately, that turned into another strategy that I was the, I guess, the lead. I was the merger and acquisition lead to acquire one of our partners that had built software to operationalize uh, very large scale virtualization programs. We bought that company and we made it available to every one of our partners so that they could bring it to our customers and help our customers accelerate their virtualization journey. And, and so I got, I got to solve this problem and actually learn the M&A process as well and be kind of on the head of substantial merger and acquisition. Or acquisition. Well, I love this. And like every every once in a while, I feel like I end up in a conversation with someone where I was like, oh, you and I were living parallel lives in some ways, uh, maybe separated by a little bit of time and it's separated by organizational boundaries. But I, I lived this problem at Microsoft with SharePoint with a whole lot of sold licenses that were not yeah. utilized. And we went out there and we said, all right, like we need to do like capacity modeling for like yes. services partners to actually <laughs> implement things that there's not, I know what you were going through because I, I, I yeah. lived it too with, with some degree of success. And, and okay. And so I think some of our audience are probably going to be sitting here thinking like, well, that's a, a neat story. And by the way, really impactful, but you know, what does this have to do with innovation? Right. To which, by the way, one of my answers is, you know, whether you are a founder, whether you are someone who wants to be an innovator in a corporate, whether you're an outside observer, 
seeing a problem and taking action, you're kind of like 95% of the, the way there. But were you thinking of yourself in these terms when you were doing this job? No, I think part of the culture that was at VMware in the early days is this is like, you know, when you go out and visit a customer, or you're at a, at a sales dinner, that money is, is your money. You're spending your money. And so on the other side of it, you're looking at it in the same way. You're thinking, wait a second, like if we're not going to be able to renew this business, that's my problem. So there was a deep sense of individual ownership at that company. And, um, and I think that comes from the stellar leadership we had through the ages that I was there. And so, yes, you feel like you have to go do something and take action on it. And I think, you know, part of it is just working in concentric circles outward. You know, I would go to some kind of, you know, trusted friends and colleagues to start getting more of a different view, a different angle from different parts of the organization. And I would do that. It was kind of, I did it by nature I guess back then I wasn't even really thinking about it that way. But it turns out that it's a really good way to improve your, your perspective and get a better diverse set of thought on the problem you're seeking to solve so that it is better equipped to stand scrutiny from executives. And so that's exactly what I did. I kind of use this, you know, kind of concentric circle ripple in the pond effect to work with people I seriously trusted to show them, you know, some of these things and then work my way out and, and then come yeah. up with a strategy of how to get it in front of the executive so that we could push that ball forward. I, well, I like that. And, and, you know, extending this sort of parallel lives metaphor, there is something that I think you did maybe a little differently than I did, but it, in a way it, it led us to the same end. You know, one of my very best managers, this was, more years ago that I'm going to, I'm going to name poor, poor Ian, kind of like, you know, baby little Ian running around within the bowels of the operating systems mm -hmm. and hardware group at Microsoft. Mm -hmm. I complained to my poor boss about one thing, like over and over and over again. This is during the development of Windows 8. And my boss, a woman named Roanne Soans, who was one of the best managers I've ever had. After about 12 or 18 months of this, she turned to me and she's like, so I hear you go fix it. You just wrote your own job description without realizing it. Mm -hmm. And she kind of threw me into a, a whole new job to address the challenges that I had seen. And, and this was all about sort of the hardware design targets for Windows. Nice. It sounds kind of similar. It was a lot of fun, but it sounds kind of similar, except that I think maybe you held a little more agency over your career. You sort of went and, and, and designed the job that you wanted. Is that fair? It's fair. It seems to be, I'm a, a repeat offender in that category. I think we were speaking a little bit earlier. I spent 10 years at VMware, probably held 10 different roles. And I think two of them had a job description. One of them was the job I got when I joined the company. And another one was when I, I was recruited back into the, the product team to launch a, a new end user computing product and run product marketing for that. And so those are like the two, but other than that, I just kind of invented jobs as I went. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I hope that's reassuring to folks. It's reassuring to me because I think we often, you know, especially in larger organizations, we sometimes get held up by bureaucracy and career risk management and all that. But it turns out that it is actually quite possible to tell those around you what should be done backed by a certain amount of conviction, data, and humility, perhaps, uh, and they will listen. 
Absolutely. I think you have to start from a position of humility and work in integrity. And I will say that all of what I shared earlier was in a company that was smaller, but I did something similar at Google just a couple of years ago. And that was coming in and taking a look at the Google Workspace kind of operation and understanding where we could improve it and working with key executives at the highest levels around that product, Google Workspace, to create a new function called Product GTM Lifecycle, which had a mission to marry the go-to-market we create with the product we intend to develop. Sounds like a novel kind of thing, but um, you'd be surprised in large companies. There are all sorts of capabilities that are trying to shape that all the time. However, there's a lot of competing programs and practices that are competing for attention. And so putting, particularly for, for Google Workspace, which aspires, like we've been seeing, to, to become more prevalent in the, in the enterprise, being able to put a, a more of a focus on that was something that I was, I was able to do there by, by working with the top senior executives in the Google Workspace product area to put in this new type of role and function. So how do you power through some of the uncertainty that I'm sure you felt because the data is never perfect, the future is never perfect. How do you power through that and decide, you know, now's the time to make my pitch. Now's the time to do the thing. You know, like uncertainty, I think that's the key word in that question. And uncertainty is, it's really kind of like, it's a form of, of risk. And I think part of getting around this is understanding the absolute worst case scenario, right? So we start to worry, we have this uncertainty, we feel it have some pressure on us. But I think the thing to ask is, so what? So what happens? And then what happens? And if that happens, that horrible things happens, then what happens? And I think in the grand scheme of things, it's like, especially if you're listening, if you're one of the very fortunate people that have won the lottery of life and you happen to be listening to this podcast, right? Probably the worst thing that's going to happen to you if you follow through on this is a boatload of learning experience and incredibly tight relationships with coworkers. So that's probably the worst outcome that's going to happen. Yep. I, yes, we do have things like pride and how will people see me? And what you start to realize, I think, as you get further and further along in your career is that, you know, again, work in integrity, work with dignity, work from a position of humility, but go do the thing. Yeah. Be a leader. And I think that is how you start to tackle that uncertainty is taking it, looking at the bigger picture and understanding this is risk. Risk is often about mitigating the things that we don't have control over. And just doing that first step, understanding what do you have control over, what do you don't, that's the first step toward dramatically reducing what you believe is uncertainty because you've just clarified all of the things you think are creating or posing some risk. Yeah. And that's the first step. And then it, it goes on from there, but that's how I get over that initial hump, that activation threshold, get over that hump of the uncertainty that's holding us back is expose it. So what if this whole thing doesn't work? And what are the things that I believe or perceive as risky? How do I develop information? How do I use that information to counter 
and be an antidote to the uncertainty. Well, I love that framing. And you know, it's funny, I'm going to try and articulate why. I don't think this is going to be the most coherent thing I've ever said. But here's what I love. Like so many people, I think, try and push through uncertainty by doing some the things that some of us in the, say, the startup ecosystem tell them to do. Like, you have to know your customer, know the voice of your customer. You know, you have to be convicted in your thesis and, your, you know, whatever. They try and push through the uncertainty through data. And that that's important and it has a place. But things are never certain. The thing that is holding us back from taking the first step is often in, you know, overt or sort of latent sense of risk. And so, you know, you basically just articulated, make your first step in understanding of that risk and then the next step falls falls up follows that's it and the and and it's it's a very logical first step and i think it is one that is actually really applicable to so many of us whether we're thinking about yeah. going out and starting a company whether we're thinking about proposing a new feature to sit you know three thousand deep in the backlog you know whatever it might be i see this all the time ian at large companies mid-size early stage startups doesn't matter Companies, when it comes to innovation or comes to growth, companies are rate limited by their ability to develop information and make a decision. Actually, I'll throw another step in there. Develop information, understand what decisions are most important to make, make those decisions and get on to the next step, which is making, identifying and developing more information. Like that's the cycle. And that's why I, I kind of, I, I've relied on that in my career. I think it's it goes hand in hand with I'm a curious person, probably a little too curious, and that coupled with maybe a you know touch of ADD means that I can go down you know other sure. places very easily and quickly. But I think it has served me well. So develop information, yeah. Well, yeah, it makes a lot of sense. And as I look around, sort of you know, the world today, right? I mean, the the pace of change in the world is not slowing down. It's increasing, right? The pace at which information travels, the pace at which technology changes, the pace at which, you know, new companies show up that claim to do the things that you did yesterday, you know, five times, 10 times, thousand times better. Like it's increasing. Therefore, you're never operating from a place of certainty, you literally can't take a snapshot of the world and make a decision on that perfect snapshot because you're going to be six months too late and the world will have changed 40 times by then. Yeah. And five years from now, it will change a hundred times, you know, in that same period. So, so I, I love this as a, as a lesson for folks. You know, I think in the short term, you can try to, you know, do what, you know, Wayne, the great Wayne Gretzky would say, which is skate to where the puck will be. I think it's very difficult to do that in longer timeframes. And that, that time frame is subject to kind of the situation you're in, the startup you're in, or large company you're in, the industry you're in, you know, lots of other factors. So I think getting a GPS coordinates of where you are and, you know, what does that plan look like? And what is the shelf life of that plan? <laughs> right? Like most- Seven to eight seconds. Yeah. Right. I think that's an important thing. And just, and then, yeah. yeah and then going I like it. Well, so you and I earlier were talking a little bit about sort of the changes in the world around us. And we got to talking about tools that people can use, right, to sort of make sense to take the first step. And then you kind of let me in on a little secret. You're working on a new project. Yes. Uh, a new project that is perhaps going to help 
individuals and teams make some sense of what they should do in the world around them. I don't want to, you know, spoil the reveal, <laughs> but do you want to share a little bit about this new project that you're working on with us? Um, I would love to. I want to, can I, can I just say one more thing about the navigating oh, yeah. change thing? I think this is important. You know, we talk about like tech, software, computing, networking, all these things kind of evolving so quickly, right? And that seems like we are in this world of ever, ever accelerating change. And I think this idea that this, this premise behind this question, right, is we're in this world of, of, of like I said, um, rapidly accelerating acceleration of <laughs> change. And the reality of this is that navigating all of this, it goes back to confidence. I think we kind of touched on that earlier. And I think the rate of change creates this lack of confidence that the decision we make today won't be valid tomorrow, right? You said it, like maybe it only has a shelf life of eight seconds. But I think that's kind of where we need to come in, right? I think we need to understand that that confidence is a form of uncertainty. And the uncertainty, again, is a factor that drives overall risk. And so I think what we all need to do is just take a beat and think about what are the concrete steps I can do to control, affect the things that I control, and develop new information that might mitigate that risk, right? So kind of putting that maybe in a little bit of a better box for everyone is that those two things, I think, are, are, are very, very closely connected. Um, yeah. Yeah. I love that. So. That resonates with me in a few ways, but you know, one thing that I think a lot about, right, is the pace at which people are forced to make decisions, right? And so there's a counterpoint to our earlier discussion. Yeah. Like you have to make a decision. You have to you have to take an action. You have to take a step. You can't just, you know, sit there waiting to catch up with the world. But the the flip side of that is that you kind of need to deliberately carve out the time and the steps to do it thoughtfully, right? 200 years ago, you had anywhere from a week to six or eight months of latency between communication, right? As letters navigate the globe. Now it's instant. And so we feel that pressure, Yep. but you can take a beat. You can pause, you can put a little structure around it and say, okay, let me look at the snapshot of what I know now. Let me, you know, make the decision and then go. And I, I actually think that's a really important reminder these days to keep people out of like constantly feeling like they're just lost in, you know, the quicksand. I, I agree. Yeah. I, and I'll take it one step further. I promise I'll get to the, the thing, but I think another antidote or framework or tool people can use, because we're kind of talking about something that may seem abstract. Let me make it a little more concrete. The counter to things moving so quickly is you can get feedback that much more quickly. So I think one of the skills to focus on and cultivate is the ability to create experiments. You know, this sounds like something that should be limited to maybe the R&D organization, the product organization, or the marketing organization. The truth is every one of us in our roles can think about how we can experiment with an idea that we have. It could be as simple as inviting a colleague to lunch and putting something out there in the discussion to see how they respond to it. You know, and I think the more that we can think critically about our ideas and about the innovation or the opportunity that we see, and then turn that into 
very simple two, three, four hypotheses with an experiment that we can perform. It doesn't need to be set up in a lab. It can be done in a, in a very simple, low resolution, quick turnaround kind of thing. And getting in the habit of understanding what you believe to be true, creating hypotheses around it, and then thinking through a set of experiments you can do to generate and develop that information, I think that can be the concrete thing that can get us out of this. So that's one thing I think maybe, because I'm always about concrete. I always want to get down to a methodology. What is the recipe for getting something done? Preaching to the choir, and I think it's <laughs> genius advice. Absolutely. So, so speaking of methodologies, how's yes. that for a segue back in? <laughs> uh, yeah, I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, tell us, you've got a pretty interesting project. I've got a project going on. Yeah. Tell us what's going on. I love it. Thanks again for the reminder and the opportunity. So we talked a little bit about VMware. So VMware for me, we have to put it in perspective. This was my age, 33 to 43, <laughs> right? Like, so I was in pro like the power curve of my career. And without getting into the details, I wound up getting involved in the M&A process quite heavily at, at VMware. And I worked in more than 14 acquisitions that were worth billions of dollars. And that's separate from the stuff that I worked on at at VMware for products like, you know, back then it was ESX server, now vSphere and others that were billion dollar products in and of their own. But these acquisitions were of companies like EMC had an entire division called Ionix, Integrian, Digital Fuel, Spring Source, which was a massive acquisition, SocialCast, Zimbra, SlideRocket, there's lots more. And during all that experience of working with the due diligence team, and playing a role on the integration team, that due diligence piece meant I was spending quite a bit of time working on go-to-market strategy, particularly financial modeling of it all. Sure. When we acquired these companies, we had to figure out how are we going to get their products through our channel in the hands of our salespeople to bring to our customers, into the hands of our partners to bring to our customers, how we're going to develop a new sales process. The you know, onboarding of new channel partners because this is a new industry segment or product segment that we're dealing with, right? So I had to really think about all of these different perspectives of making this purchase of a company. I was not alone. I was one person of many working on this, but I was insanely attracted to this. I had a deep-seated curiosity for it. Well, the pace of the acquisitions was peaking and I needed like tools to help me be more productive. And I summoned a lot of the training I got as a <laughs> consultant at Accenture back then, Anderson Consulting. I'm really dating myself. But um, so I started researching GTM strategy and I was really like left unsatisfied because the bulk of the material was focused on positioning, messaging, advertising, and these strategies, so to speak, importantly, happened to be very siloed by nature, right? It was about, oh, Here's go to market, like the entire book of go to market strategy was sales or it was marketing or it had to do with, you know, channel and partners. So I was, I was very unsatisfied with what I was, was seeing there and nothing that I was looking at offered me a repeatable and dependable methodology so that I could model these GTM strategies. Remember, I'm dealing with all sorts of different companies in the security space, networking space, sure. apps space, everything. And so one night, very late night, a lot of late nights then, 
I was like keying like financial models into spreadsheets. And it occurred to me that like many of these formulas and the models <laughs> provided clues about the key drivers of a business, right? Very common. If anybody out there has ever built a financial model, you know this to be true. So I started decomposing these formulas. I was tracing dependencies. I'm looking at what assumptions we're making and refining those. I'm confirming relationships between all these things. And I came to realize there were a handful of drivers in the go-to-market model that produced the largest changes in the model, right? I.e. growth, whatever our metric was, you know, more seats, more licenses, whatever it might be. And I'm a visual thinker and learner, and I learn best by doing. And so I started sketching out what I thought were all these, these drivers as I understood them. And back then it was the customer and their segments, their product, channels, sales models, pricing, packaging, licensing. Yep. And this framework became a key tool that we used in the M&A process and particularly about how to examine the components of a business, model those and run pro forma scenarios. Sound familiar? <laughs> right? For startup founders? Indeed. Indeed. So since that time, I, I've just continued to like use this framework, deploy it, test it, learn from it, iterate it, and keep building on this original model. And eventually I added a sixth driver around customer experiences. And um, after seeing the, the positive results, as I've shared this framework with hundreds of startups at the accelerators we, we talked about and organizations and institutions we spoke about earlier in this segment, you know, I, I saw the positive results of working with those startups, but also at Google, I decided to put this all in one place for everybody. And so I'm writing a book to share this GTM strategy methodology more broadly. And um, in the book, I plan to provide the reader with examples and exercises and ideas and encouragement, frankly, about how to apply what they learn in their, their own business. And so, yeah, that's, I'm very excited. I'm at the beginning of this journey and it's the first time I'm ever writing a book, but I'm committed to it and I'm having fun with it, which is important. I wake up thinking about it. So that is important. Yeah. So thank you again. I know it's a well, long it's story. But... <laughs> like, it's action through uncertainty. You're taking the steps and you know, we're recording this on kind of a, a nice Monday afternoon, you know, but your book's going to be farther along. It might even be out by the time the podcast comes out, depending on how quickly you type. I don't know that it'll be out, but I will, I'll drop. So the yeah. name of the methodology is Overdrive GTM. So it's again, leaning into the gear metaphor. And the idea behind Overdrive is creating an operating capability that is above normal. And that's what I hope to do for people. And so uh, listeners can go to Overdrive GTM and start to get a little bit of a better idea of what the book will entail, you know, what, what it'll cover and that sort of thing. Well, amazing. <laughs> well, Pete, we're coming up on time. This yeah. has been a fascinating and far-ranging conversation. I really appreciate it. For uh, those of our listeners who want to keep up with what you're doing, What's the yeah. best way? You mentioned Overdrive GTM, uh, which is great. Are you yeah. on LinkedIn? Are you for you know, sure the TikToks these days? How should people keep up? TikTok. My audience isn't on TikTok. They will be. <laughs> the The current TikTok users today are the founders of tomorrow. But yes, you can find me on predominantly. I spend my time on LinkedIn, and it's just you can actually go to LinkedIn.thisispeterg.com, and that'll actually take you to my LinkedIn profile. 
So linkedin.thisispeterg.com. And in fact, you can use the at thisispeterg on X, formerly known as Twitter. That's where I spend, the time that I do spend, I spend there. And when I publish, I try to publish primarily on, on LinkedIn these days. And I also have a website for my consulting practice called gostart.co. Go start, like get up and go start something. And you can see some of the workshops I've done there and a little bit more about kind of my methodology. And we didn't talk about this, but I am very recently getting back into the advisory role. So focusing, like I think I mentioned earlier, focusing on those early stage startups. So yeah, amazing. A little more there. Yes. <laughs> thank you for asking. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the pod today. This was a lot of fun and I can't wait to see what's next step, what the next steps are. Yeah, me too. I had a great time. Thanks for having me, Ian. Have a good one. So that's a wrap for today's episode of Alchemist X Innovators Inside. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you found value and insight in today's discussion, please be sure to subscribe to the podcast and never miss an episode. Don't forget to share with your friends, colleagues, or anyone who is passionate about corporate innovation or just curious about great ideas and practical insights. Until next time, I'm Ian Bergman. Thanks for tuning in.